And now, with sound investing, here's Paul Merriman. Before I get into the meat of this podcast, I would like to uh, put it in perspective, because for some of our listeners, this may be the most important uh, information I have to share with them. If I take you back 20-plus years, and you saw the work that I was uh, doing in terms of teaching, I know that most of it was focused on those that were near or in retirement. And when I say near, let's say 10 years uh, and less from retirement, and those in retirement. And so there was a focus, a big focus on this ultimate buy and hold strategy where I do my best to make the case for why you would build a portfolio beyond either the total market index or beyond the S&P 500 and adding small amounts of large cap value, small cap value, small cap lend, etc. So that instead of using one basic asset class, speaking of equities here, Uh, It was focused on uh, 10 different uh, asset classes. And as that study, and I update that study every year, uh, that study shows that by adding these other individually more risky asset classes that at the end of time, a long period of time, there is a big premium for adding these uh, uh, these other asset equity asset classes, uh, but a, a risk that is very, very similar. So that was the focus on what equities should we have in the portfolio. Then, of course, if you're talking about people who are 10 years from retirement or in retirement, they probably aren't going to have all of their money in equities. So how much fixed income should they have? And that led to a fine-tuning your asset allocation table that was focused on those same 10 equity asset classes and different percentages of bonds. That then allowed people to make some judgment uh, about um, how much risk they should be willing to take, what kind of Return, a reduced return is expected when you start adding fixed income. How much would that reduction be, etc.? And then, because when you're 10 years away from retirement or in retirement, you do focus on distributions and how to take money out of, uh, of your investments to live on. And so I've done a lot of work comparing the results of a fixed distribution plus inflation, and a variable distribution. Now, I have updated those every year. I have not done that yet this year, but will be doing this in the coming weeks. And one thing that invariably came out of the discussion about those distribution tables is, why did you use a million dollars as your starting point in this portfolio? Uh, There are very few of us, they would say, that have the ability to have a million dollars to invest in retirement. Well, what I would say was, is that you could cut everything in half. You could cut everything, you could reduce it by 75% and create your kind of your own uh, uh, fine-tuning your asset allocation or distribution table. So, Um, What I didn't address, and as I see looking backwards, I didn't address really how do you get to that million-dollar-plus portfolio. And in fact, as I've told you a number of times, if back in the 60s I went into the industry, people just wish so they could have a million dollars. If you inflation adjust that, that would be the equivalent of about $5 million today. So there, there is an interesting, uh, interesting challenge here uh, for, uh, uh, for investors. Uh, but it does say to me that I need to show young people, and that's what this 
This particular podcast is really aimed at the person in their 20s, maybe their 30s. Doesn't mean you wouldn't get something out of it if you're in your 40s, but if you're in your 40s or your 50s and you've got a, maybe you've got a young child who's coming out of high school, going into college, and and maybe maybe they are the ones that you should be sharing this with. But Here's here's where I've I've failed. I think a lot of investors. I didn't focus on building it up to, let's call it a million dollars, or let's think in terms of five million dollars today. And I'll and I'll show you how I think that uh, uh, that one would probably uh, how they could do that. Now, if you really want to get the most out of this, if you haven't read or heard uh, my other work on fine-tuning your asset allocation or the ultimate buy-and-hold strategy, I really encourage you to start to go through those. And in fact, in the description of this podcast, uh, there are links to the ultimate buy-and-hold strategy. And those links are going to take you to uh, uh, podcasts and articles and tables. And the same with fine-tuning your asset allocation because that is the table that produces all of the annual returns that feed into this uh, accumulation uh, uh, study that we're going to be talking about. Now, uh, and you can and you can listen to podcasts and you can read articles and look at tables uh, by going to the link to the fine tuning your asset allocation uh, page of. 2018 updated information through the end of 2017. But let me talk about the assumptions that we're going to be under here and what what I'm going to show you. First of all, I'm going to be using the returns of those fine-tuning tables. Now, up until last year, I had only looked at this worldwide strategy, the big, small, value growth, U.S. international REITs and emerging markets, and shown how that portfolio would have done uh, over many decades, in fact, going back to 1970. But recently, I have decided it would be helpful if I show you how the S&P 500, which, of course, is a accepted uh, a benchmark by most investors as what the, the U.S. market is. Uh, and then I'm going to show you uh, not only the S&P and a worldwide strategy, but I'm going to show you a strategy that is all value, a large value, small value in the U.S., large value, small value international, and, um, and, and a emerging market. Uh, a value uh, portfolio. Uh, and what you'll see when you look at the fine-tuning tables for the all-value portfolio, you'll see that the risk is very similar to the S&P 500, but the return is life-changing uh, if, if, in fact, one did that over the last uh, almost 50 years. And both the worldwide and the all-value are half U.S., half international. But I've heard from a lot of you that I just can't take half of my money in internationals. It's just too many unknowns about the international markets. And um, you have a lot of people who believe right now there are a lot of unknowns about the U.S. market. But I created these with the help, by the way, of Daryl Balls, who has just done some magnificent work uh, uh, for you and for me. But we show the 70-30, 70% U.S., 30% international. How would that have done from 1970 through 2017 uh, in both the worldwide strategy and the all-value strategy? So there's a ton of information that's behind uh, this this study, as they as they will be behind the distribution studies that you'll see in a few weeks. Now, I just you need to know that not every asset class I think you should have in your portfolio was available from 1970 through uh, through uh, 2017. Uh, emerging markets, I believe, goes back to 1988. 
And so what we did in building these tables is start with what we had available from the academic community starting in 1970 and then build it year by year. And when an asset class we think you should have in the portfolio became available, we added it uh, to, the, uh, uh, to the, the portfolio. Now, you could say, well, how valid is this study? Remember, this is the past. It's all hypothetical. It will never happen the same way again. Nothing that we look at in the past is, is real. It, I mean, sure, you can say people who invested in the S&P 500 certainly got the S&P 500 return. Well, actually, no, they didn't because the S&P 500, the, the, the numbers are, are taken all the way back to 1926 if you want to use them. But the S&P 500 itself did not become uh, uh, an index of 500 companies until 1957. And not only that, but there wasn't a mutual fund that you could buy until 1976 that represented the S&P 500. So this, it, it, we've got to get over this idea that if you didn't have actual trades one day at a time, everything we look back at is meaningless. It's all we have. And again, it's not going to be the same again. I can guarantee you that day after day after day is not going to look like the comparable day after day after day, even a year ago. It's all the unknown that we have to deal with. But what we can focus on, let's call it the possibilities of what you could be exposed to or the, the probabilities. You can think of it either way. We know that there are no guarantees to the future. So how can you put a probability of success? But if you see, for example, that stocks outperform bonds over long periods of time, you could say, well, I think they will in the future. I don't know by how much. I don't know how much the equities will make. I don't know how much the bonds will make. I can tell you that in the uh, late 70s and the early 80s, the people then would not have believed that interest rates would get down as low as they have in the in the past years because they were looking at interest rates. I, I bought a five-year CD in, I don't know, 1982 or 81 uh, that was paying 16%. And then interest rates came way, way down. In fact, that became, for people living off of those fixed income instruments, one of the biggest bear markets in history. So we don't know. All we can do is try to build enough information that we can see kind of the range of what things will happen, what things are likely to happen to us. And we really need to figure out a way to give young investors, first-time investors, who hear all sorts of garbage about the stock market, and they think in terms of the stock market as kind of what's going on today, how much is it up, how much is it down. Our president says something in the market could go up or go down, depending on the kind of the emotions of the day. That's not what investing is about. So let me tell you what the lessons are that I would like to, to share with you in this podcast. First of all, I want to show you how a small investment can make a huge difference over long periods of time. I've talked in the past about the impact of a dollar a day from birth to 65, compounding and legitimately being worth $2 million by the time you're 65. So this study will show you the implication of that. I think it will also show you how important the decision is as to how much you put in stocks and how much you put into bonds can create a huge, huge difference over time. Third thing I'm going to show you is give you the chance to compare the long-term returns of different equity asset classes. As I said earlier, I'll show you the S&P 500 as a standalone equity a portfolio, and I'll show you the worldwide equity approach as well as the all-value equity approach, 
and you'll see the difference. You'll see the difference. In fact, you may be shocked if you think about it that at about the same risk you could end up with twice as much money for your retirement. The fourth thing is, is I want to make the point that a portfolio of thousands of companies does not prevent you from being exposed to the huge impact of what we call market risk. You can own 15,000, 10,000, 5,000 stocks, and you can still lose half of the value of your portfolio. It happens over and over and over, and I'll show you that because uh, it, it will happen uh, basically um, three times during this 1970 uh, through 2017 period. The fifth thing I'm going to show you, this will be a quickie when I show you, but I think you'll be interested in this, that the internal expenses of funds can have a big, big impact over time. The sixth thing I'm going to share with you is that uh, by taking more equity risk made it possible to produce better returns at much less risk. So by, by being more aggressive, you actually can take less risk and achieve better returns. Kind of sounds impossible, but hang on and I'll share that with you. Number seven, I want to make it very clear that short-term returns are impossible to predict. So what happens is that luck becomes a major aspect of your financial future. Uh, I will talk about that and, and, and the difference in what you'll end up with, certainly on a, on a short-term basis, can be way different than what you expected. Number eight, that, and this is kind of part of number seven in a way, that bonds do beat stocks sometimes for a long period of time. There's some more of that luck impacting you. Number nine, I want to make the point that this investment is likely to represent about 10% of your income for a beginning uh, college graduate. I went back and looked at what you would have been making as a college graduate in 1970. And yes, uh, there's a range of returns depending on what industry you might go into. But it turns out that it was about 10% uh, in 1970 that I'm asking you to save. And it would represent about 10% today uh, because uh, of the way that I adjust the, uh, the amount of money you save each year. I'll show you that, but I want you to, I want you to understand that I've done my best to make these, uh, this picture the, uh, of the outcome of having saved this money over a long period of time, that it is not unrealistic. It could happen. And the, and the final thing is, boy, is this important. There are a lot of people who are afraid of of investing. They're afraid of the stock market. They're even afraid of the bond market. And they have a sense they just don't know enough uh, in order to uh, invest, that, that the market's out of control, the market is there to hurt people, and certainly a lot of people do get hurt because they don't do it right. But one of the most important points that will hopefully come out of this is that you don't need to know much about investing to do well. It's about the long term. It's about huge diversification. It's about finding the right balance of fixed income and equities to, to, to suit you. And it's available to almost everyone. Okay, so you can't put away $1,000 a year because that's the starting amount in this uh, in this table. But maybe you can do 500. Maybe you can do 250. The outcome is going to be the same. It's just going to be adjusted by the amount of, uh, of commitment that you make in terms of saving. Now, if you have not uh, downloaded the, the, uh, these accumulation tables that we've created, uh, they are available here. There's a link uh, under the description, in the description of this podcast. 
and uh, these tables, there are five of them, uh, A through E. But if we uh, look at, let's just look at the first table. And I'll go through this table, and you're going to quickly see uh, how to uh, look at this information uh, and how it could apply to you. So this first table, table A, is headed S&P 500 Fixed Contribution Schedule. Now, we're not talking about living off this money. We're talking about building this money. And we're starting with an initial contribution in 1970 of $1,000. And each year, we are going to increase that amount by 3%. So if you look at the far right-hand column, the first year was $1,000. And oh, by the way, I should mention that is being invested on a monthly basis so that it's very much like you might be putting that money into a 401k. And I should also mention that as you look at these tables and you think about your $1,000, it is possible in a lot of cases that you are going to have a company and then in their 401k, you are going to get a match from that company. And it might actually, with the first $1,000, be matched dollar for dollar. So you could, if you wanted to, theoretically, you might be able to double everything you see here if the company is matching that first $1,000. That's not unusual. But you will notice in that far right-hand column that says annual contribution. You start with 1000 and your last year's contribution in 2017 would be $4,012. All that is is a 3% annual increase starting with 1000 so the second year was 1030 and then 1061 etc and that uh, totaled up to $104,408 if you look at the bottom of the annual contribution now if you then look right next to it you'll see what happened to that $1,000 investment at the end of the first year in the S&P 500. And that is, by the way, without any expenses. And you would have ended the year with $1,022. You would have made a little money. And you were putting away, I think, about $83 a month. Now, let's just follow that first line to the left, and it says 100% stock. Notice instead of 1,022, you ended up with 1,021. They took part of your profit. In fact, I assumed under this 100% stock portfolio that you owned the S&P 500, but you had to pay one-tenth of one percent a year to have it managed. Now you'll notice as you move to the left from the 100% stock number that says 90-10. That means 90% in the S&P 500 and 10% in bonds. Interesting what happened. If you had 10% in bonds you made, ended up with $1,027. You made six more dollars because in that year, as in many years, bonds did better than stocks. And I want to just kind of jump over to the, uh, the column that is headed 60-40 because I'll be talking a lot about the 100% stock portfolio and the 60-40 it won't surprise you that the 60% equities and 40% fixed income left you with $1,046 because you have more bonds in the portfolio and less stocks, and so the return went up even more. And finally, if we go all the way to the far left under the column headed 
100% bonds, and these are intermediate-term government bonds, uh, no, nobody trying to pick the best bonds, uh, that ended up with $1,078. So you can see that with 100% stock, you made very little, and with 100% bonds, you did much better. Great year for bonds, not a great year for stocks. And as so often happens, that compromise between you know, 60, 40, 60 equity, 40% bonds, uh, that, uh, that actually made you feel pretty good. Did better than the stock market. Uh, not as good as the bond market, but you know that in the long run, that 60% in equities is likely to pay off. Now, here is what is unique about this table. If I built this table as a one-time contribution uh, in 1970 and just let it ride, uh, you would have years that the market was down and you would show that you lost. But we're going to do something different here. We're making a commitment to put additional money in every month, every year. And so you could have a year that theoretically the market was down, but you ended up with more money at the end of the year because you added money to the portfolio. Now, now you could say, yeah, but you really lost money. But I will tell you from my experience, when young investors see at the end of the year that the market went down and they still have more money left over, I mean, in the account at the end of the year than what they had at the beginning of the year, they are very forgiving about a market decline and are likely to stay the course. And I'm going to show you in here the year that really tested investors uh, out of this 48-year uh, period. So as we build every year, increasing the contribution by 3%, you can see that, let's just look at the 100% stock portfolio here. You can see that in the second year, 1971, it goes from 1,021 to 2,274. Then the next year, it goes up to 3,869. And then the next year, it goes up to 4,302. And then, for the first time, the end of the year, it was worth $4,116. My sense is that while you're not all that excited about your investment, that that small loss, probably, I mean, it's less than $200. That may not be so discouraging uh, as, as, uh, as the, uh, uh, if you had lost uh, 10 or 20% of your, of your money. You might just for a second look over at the 60-40 strategy, and you'll see that it goes up in that same year, in that 1974, which was a bad year for the market, that because you had part of your money in bonds, uh, you made more money in 74 than 73. So it might be for some investors that's going to be better to have 60-40 only because there's less likelihood of experiencing a loss. But trust me, the risk of that loss is there all the time. Going back to the S&P 500, it doesn't have another losing year in terms of how much money you had uh, compared to the prior year. Through 1989, every year it gets better. 22,980, 23,177, 29,000, 37,000, 41, 57, 69, 74, 88, 118,000. I mean, this was a great period for the stock market. It wasn't until 1990 that you actually end the year with less money than the year before since 1974. And by the way, what you ended 1990 with was 116,843, about $2,000 less than the previous year. And just for fun, look at the all bonds 
1990, the all bonds had 80,938. So you're still maybe pretty happy that you got stocks. You're doing a lot better than bonds. And the 60-40 is at 104,568 at the end of 1990. But you at least experience the fact that the market can trudge forward and continue to give you good returns. And remembering that one of the reasons was because you, you kept putting money in fact, you kept putting money into the market even when it went down, which is great for a young investor. But then you go through the entire decade of the 90s without any setbacks. In fact, it's interesting. If you look at the all 100% stock portfolio, from 1979 to 1989, you go from 16,187 to 118,874. Then for the next decade, you go from that 118,874 to $689,226. I mean, you get it now. You see how the market works. You see the premium that can be generated. And yes, there were setbacks along the way, but you persevered. You kept putting that money in every month. Now, I want you to notice that by 1999, you put in $2,357. So you've, you've upped the ante, and again, that's because of that 3% increase. Now we come to a very, very difficult period for the S&P 500. It's what was called the lost decade because after having this huge run, remember you were at $689,000 at the end of 1999, you run into a 10-year period that the compound rate of return was negative, lost almost 1% a year. Now, that's a lot of money to lose. And in fact, in fact, the killer was, look at 2007. You ended up with 808,287. Now, that happened after having started that decade at basically 689,000. Up to 808, got it made thinking of early retirement. And then 2008 came along, and the portfolio went from 808 to $511,000 and closed out that decade with $649,040,000 less than you started that, that, that period. Now, this is important. Y you can be underwater for a decade. Now, who could that be important to? Well, that drop from 808 to 511, that's because the, the, the market just took a big dive. And for a first-time investor, so what? In fact, uh, you might end the, you would end the year with a loss, but by the uh, end of the second year, you'd be coming back and being almost, in fact, Within a couple of years, you'd be even. But for a person who was, let's say, at the end of 2007, Jim and Martha are talking about retirement, and they say, let's give it one more year. Or let's, let's make it worse. Let's, let's say that Jim and Martha decide, we got it made. Let's retire right now and start living off of this money. And in fact, you might have said, let's go from 100% equity to 60-40. But notice, even 60-40 took a big bump. Not as big a bump as the all equity, but this big loss that's built into the market, that big loss, there's no way to know for sure when it's coming. People can say, well, uh, the when the market's overvalued, you're at the risk of a 50% decline. But in many respects, from about 1976 through 1999, the market fought its way through 
through uh, bump after bump without being hit with anything significant except a one-day decline in Oct- on October 19, 1987, which shook the world. In one day, it went down 22.5%. But it didn't go down 50, as it did uh, in 2000 through 2002 and 2007 through 2009. So things felt pretty dreary there at the end of that decade. 2009, you ended up with $649,000. But you decided with this part of your portfolio, you're going to stay the course. You're going to let it ride. You're a buy and holder. Let's say you're many years still from retirement. And you waited till 2017. Well, that's $649,000 grew to $1.88 million. So that's, that's a big deal. Uh, that's a portfolio that grew at around 10% a year. I want you, though, to look at that 20, 2017 uh, value and look at the difference between the 100% stock and the S&P 500 column right next to it. That difference is about 70000 or so. That's the difference between no fee and a one-tenth of one percent fee. It does add up over time, doesn't it? And that's one-tenth of one percent. Well, here's what I know. That if you could have the confidence that in the long term, the stock market is going to serve you better than the bond market. And I want you to look at the difference at the bottom of that page for the all-stock market, up to one point, almost $9 million, versus all-in bonds, 463000 Four times, over four times, about four times, uh, to, 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 to be able to live on by having taken that extra risk. And if you looked at the 60-40, the bottom line number is 1,162,000. Still a lot better, and you took less risk. Now, let me tell you this about the 100% stock column, that there were six years that you ended up with less than the year before. Six years out of 48. And only really one year was a life changer. Well, in a way, but if you looked at the three years, 2000 through 2002, you went from 689,000 down to 434. So it happened over several years. I mean, these problems can happen in one year, or over three years, could be over four. We don't have any evidence on this page. But six times you had less the next year than you had the year before. If you were 60-40, four times you had less. If you were all in bonds, twice you had less. And the differences were very very small. So for people who really want safety, bonds will give you a fairly consistent uptick almost every year. Not true with stocks. That's why you get the premium for having taken that risk. So this is your way of looking at what it could be like over your working lifetime, in fact, it could even take you beyond that. And is 48 years uh, impossible? Well, if you're 40 years old, you probably would be looking here maybe more at, uh, uh, at, at 20 or maybe 30 years rather than looking at 48. But it's certainly possible that a 21-year-old uh, could be working for 48 years accumulating money towards their retirement. A lot of people say that uh, uh, 75 will be the <laughs> will be the new 65, 
and when we talk about young people who are getting started now. So if you want to try to retire before your neighbors, you probably want to get investing as early as possible. Okay, now that's table A. This is based on the benchmark, what everybody agrees is this very, very high-quality equity portfolio or, or, or index. So let's go to table B. And don't throw away table A, because I'm going to be referring to it. But here we, we, we open up the choices for the portfolio. The equity part is built on what we call the ultimate buy and hold strategy, and it's 50-50 U.S. international in the equity portion, and the bonds are, uh, once again, the uh, intermediate-term treasury. So we already know about the risk and, and return of the bond portion. But the stock portion is going to change substantially. And let me just give you the first highlight I see about going this better way is when I look at 1970, and I see that I put $1,000 into that portfolio, and the ultimate buy and hold all equity portfolio ended up with $988. I was a loser. And yet, Paul assured me this was really a smart thing to do for the long term. Well, $12 loss, maybe, maybe they would uh, cut me a little slack and and, and, and try it a little longer. And of course, you can see what happens. Well, if you looked at it year by year, you would see that you do not get a decline in value until 1990, when it goes from 1989 of 238,000 down to 212. But then for the rest of that decade, it was great. You end up with $692,000 in 1999. Now, just I mean, this just shows you the the cost of patience. The S and P 500 ended up with 689,000. I mean, almost the same return. And so, what's the big advantage, Mister Merriman? You might be saying. Well, the advantage shows up in the next decade because. If you remember with the S&P 500, you ended up at the end of 1999 with less money than you started, about $40,000. Here we start with 692,790 and by the end of 2009 you have 1.4 million dollars compared to 649 for the S&P 500. Now, let's keep this is one of my favorite sayings. There is no risk in the past. We know what we should have done. We always know what we should have done because we know what happened. A librarian could figure that out. Don't need to be a stock jockey to figure that out. But what we do know about the portfolio, that worldwide, big, small, value, growth, etc., is that it has a ton more diversification. It has, you could say, either more or fewer ways to fail, but it has more diversification. And everybody believes that the more diversification that you get, particularly in asset classes that have a long history of success, the more that you get, the lower the risk doesn't mean you won't have some big declines with 15,000 stocks versus 500. You will. And in fact, you can see that. In 2008, it was uh, went from the end of 2007 of 1.75 down to 1 million, as opposed to being down to 511,000 with the S&P 500. Now, I said that one of the things I wanted to show you is that by becoming, by being a, more aggressive, and I don't think it's a lot more aggressive, uh, I'm sure others in the industry would differ with that comment, but 
when I look at the at the worst periods of loss, I don't see much difference, particularly when we look out over a period of three to five years. The worst period with the, with the worldwide is better than the S&P 500. Higher returns or smaller losses. Let's look at it that way. But I said that one of the things I wanted you to learn is that you can, if you take more risk in the equity part of your portfolio, likely accomplish better rates of return at much less risk than another asset class. Here's an example. I see that the S&P 500, a 100% stock portfolio, with this $1,000 a year and upping it by 3% a year, ends up with $1.87 million. I also see that in the worldwide 50-50 strategy with 70% equity, 30% fixed income, that I ended up with $1.94 million. So what I'm suggesting is is that you could likely get the return of the S&P 500, but load your portfolio with a, a significant 30% uh, starting from day one. That's a significant portion of the portfolio and fixed income. And continue to be 30-70 to hopefully protect against the catastrophic Let's see what other. Oh, let's just talk about the number of years that you have a setback. In the case of the worldwide equity, you had eight losing years instead of six. Remember, that losing year simply meant you even you're adding money every year, so that's protecting your assets. But you had uh, eight instead of six, so you had a little more downside there in terms of number of years. The 60-40 ended up with four, the same as the S&P 500 negative years. And so I would say that over the long term, and, and let's look, by the way, at the bottom line of the 60-40 with the worldwide. 1.6 million for the S&P 500, 1.16 million. Huge advantage to the worldwide. Let's go on, and by the way, it's important to note maybe that you put in exactly the same amount of money here as you did uh, with the previous one. When we go to table C, we're going to look at the uh, all value. Remember, if you, uh, and, and, and if you haven't read about the all value, you know what, I'm going I'm to put a link to an article about all value in the description uh, of this podcast. But what I know is that all value does what it can, and it's not pure, to get rid of the growth part of the portfolio. Warren Buffett's claim to fame is he's a value investor. He buys companies when the price is right, which suggests down. Uh, and value stocks, according to the academics, uh, one group of academics anyhow, are identified by companies that have a, a low price to book value. When you can buy a company for its book value, that's the price in the market, and growth companies are selling for two or three or four times their book value, it's obviously a lower cost company. Now, those great growth companies have the people who invest in them have very high expectations for their future, which is why they're willing to, to pay higher prices. But the academics will say when you pay those higher prices, you're expecting to get lower returns in the long run because they're higher quality companies. Not so, theoretically, with the value companies. Now, I could go on and talk about this page of table C for five or 10 minutes. I'm not going to do that because I think you know enough to be able to, to uh, get a sense of, of how to evaluate this compared to the S&P 500. Uh, 
Now, let me just walk you through. First of all, I would want to look at the 100% stock portfolios. I'd want to see uh, how many times I had less money at the end of the end of a year from the previous year, and I will just tell you it was five years for the 100% stock and for the 60-40, four, four years, four years for the S&P 500, four years for the worldwide. I do know that at the bottom line of the 100% stock portfolio, that I you would have ended up with 4.4 million versus 3.3 for the worldwide and 1.9 for the S&P 500. And for the 60-40, ending up with about 1.9 versus, uh, let's see, for the worldwide of uh, 60-40, 1.6 versus 1.2, let's say, for the S&P 500. And I think it will be helpful for you if you look at these holdings one year at a time. And there's, there's um, I'm sorry, one decade at a time. Because there is one very interesting uh, difference here that, that I'd like you to understand why. If you look at the S&P 500 from 70 to 79, you end that period with 16,187, 100% stocks. With the value orientation, 25,864. Big advantage, uh, but you don't, don't have a lot of money in there, so it may not feel like that big a deal. It is big. Then you go from, with the S&P, from 16,200, 70 to $120,320 for the S&P 500. Big jump. Great decade. And for the uh, uh, the 100% stock and the value portfolio, you go from 25864 to 262327 Feeling just fine. And while that is a, a, a big difference between the value and the S&P 500, I'm sure both investors are feeling good. In fact, it's unlikely the S&P 500 investor would even have any idea what was going on with the all-value portfolio. And then, at the end of the next decade, the 1990 to 99 this was the golden age, really, the golden age for the S&P 500. You end that period with 600. You start with 118. You end with $689,000. And the value goes from 262 to 828. Well, you know, about three times as good, but, but the S&P 500... It is about six times as good over that decade. Amazing. But what happened then, because a lot of the S&P 500 is going to be technology-driven, and that was you know, the age of the golden age of technology, and that set you up for the market being way overvalued. Now, value can get overvalued, too. But... Value had not done as well during that decade. So in that following decade, from 2000 to 2009, you may remember that at the end of that 10 years, you had about $40,000 less with the S&P 500 than you did with the all-value. And with the uh, all-value, you started with 828, and you end up with uh, 1.9 million at the end of the uh, uh, end of that decade from 19 from 2000 to 2009 so it was not a lost decade for value value had underperformed substantially oh it was still good nobody was complaining but if you could have been in the S&P 500 that's where you would want to be if you wanted to be a uh, uh, on the on the hot horse and at the end of the 48-year period, 
the all value ends up with 4.4 million uh, versus 1.9 million for the S&P and uh, 3.3 uh, for the uh, worldwide. And it's an interesting decision for investors. I mean, I can see how easy it would be for me to talk a young person uh, into an all-value portfolio. And by the way, that all-value portfolio is half large cap and half small cap. So it's not all small cap. I've done some work showing people the impact of, of all small cap, and of course, it, it would be more productive historically. Remember, looking back, no risk in the past. And then the last two tables I'm not going to spend but a few minutes on. Basically, tables D and E are the worldwide and all value, 70% U.S., 30% international. It is interesting to note that the differences for the worldwide portfolio, bottom line, how much money was uh, earned, was about the same for the worldwide. For the value, there was a pretty good size improvement of about 10%. Remember, the all value ended the period with 4.4, and now it's 4.9. So you can look backwards and know that you would have been smarter made more money if you've been 70% U.S. versus 30% international. That's a, a little difficult, that's a hard one to analyze and conclude that necessarily because the international asset classes um, in terms of value uh, were not around in the early years, which actually had been a pretty good time for internationals. So I am not meaning for this to represent some sort of future for your money. What I am saying is that historically, uh, investments, they do get a premium, equity investments, and that small cap and value have gotten since 1926 and all the long-term studies more of a premium than large cap growth more uh, premium than large cap blend. And we can't go back to 1926 in the international markets. Now, I want to make sure that I completed my goal of uh, talking about these, these lessons. So the first one I wanted to make sure that you got exposed to is that small investments can make a big difference over long periods of time. And I am sure that if you're in your 20s, if you really want to sacrifice some for the future, you know, for some people, this may actually, if you want to do this, be mean taking a uh, second job for a few hours a month uh, in, in order to put this money away. I, that's, uh, that's, that's one I wish I had time to address uh, individually with you, but I'll be doing some articles on that in the future. But we're talking about starting with $83 a month uh, and adjusting that by 3% a year. And I think for somebody in their early 20s, their first job, and they might be, by the way, able to, uh, uh, to get uh, some sort of a match, um, I think if you can build that to a multi-million dollar portfolio, that a, makes a big difference in your retirement. I think I've made the point that uh, number two was to discuss about how different percentages in stocks and bonds makes a difference. Well, you can see the bottom line. I, um, if I even look at the S&P 500, the 60-40 is 1.16 versus uh, 1.9 for the 100% stock, so a big, big premium for equities over fixed income. Uh, I also, the third one was to show that if you used other equity asset classes, uh, adding it to your S&P 500, if you wish, that uh, you have a chance uh, for some huge returns, at least looking backwards. But uh, the fourth point I wanted to make was that 
you can have ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars in your twenty thousand companies in your portfolio. But when the bear market comes, it's not about individual company risk; it's about market risk. And so, yes, you got got blasted. In fact, there were there were three blastings that you went through in here uh, in 1973 and 74. But at that point, you didn't have much money in there, so you hardly notice it. Uh, 2000 through 2002 and 2007 through early 2009. And, of course, that one-day loss of 22.5% uh, with the S&P 500. So there's tons of market risk in the portfolio. Five, I wanted to make the point that internal expenses of funds have a big impact over time. Uh, most of the expenses of funds are included in this table, but I did want to highlight I did want to highlight the uh, one tenth of one percent uh, of the s and p five hundred uh, versus uh, the s and p five hundred with the with the one tenth of one percent, which led to about a seventy thousand dollar cost. In return, uh, I also wanted to make the point that by taking more equity risk, it made it possible to produce better returns at less risk, and that meant that that extra return on the equity allowed you to add some fixed income if you wish to accept a lower rate of return with uh, uh, with, with with less risk. Number seven, I wanted to make sure I make the point that that short-term returns are, are virtually impossible uh, to predict. Luck just has a huge impact on the outcome. I think one of the greatest stories I know about that is the story I've shared before about John Bogle. He had the good fortune, luck, of starting his fund at the bottom of a market that for 25 years compounded at 16%. He looked like a genius. And as I've said, John Bogle doesn't make you money. Paul Merriman doesn't make you money. The market makes you money. And he was there for a golden run from, 19, from 2000 to the end of 2017. The compound rate of return was not 16%. It was 5.4 for the S&P 500. Number eight, and I didn't do this one well. I didn't do this one well. I, I said I was going to show you that bonds can outperform stocks for a long time. And uh, I just want to, if we go back to that S&P 500 table, and we look at the all-bond portfolio from 2000 through 2009, you start the 10 years with $171,000, you end the 10 years with 352. Then that's, that's pretty amazing. You know, that's a double during a period that the S&P 500 started with 689 and ended with 649. I would still rather have the 649 than the 352. Or by the way, or by the way, the 6040 started with with uh, four four hundred and twelve thousand, and ended with five hundred and forty-five. Hey, that's a pretty good run compared uh, to what happened to the S and P five hundred. So there are going to be times over a forty-eight year period where any one of these strategies is going to is going to look great, and other times it's going to look uh, like a dog. Number nine, I hoped, I hoped that uh, the idea that uh, you would be able to start out with about 10% of your income, whether you're talking about your income in uh, 1970 or your income in 2018, uh, that that would in fact give you the opportunity to see this kind of, uh, uh, of reward. And maybe the most important lesson of all is that you don't need to understand a lot about investing to do this well over the lifetime. 
You have to know a little about yourself. You'll have periods over a 40-year career that you'll be very lucky in terms of what the market will do for you and other periods that will be you'll be unlucky. Uh, I also know that some of you will face physical challenges, uh, work challenges that will interrupt the possibilities of what these tables show. But for those who want to take the time to simply understand the implications of these asset classes and take the time to figure out how to access those asset classes and start saving as young as you can and to parents and grandparents, hopefully I can encourage you to help your children and grandchildren get started. Please, please share this podcast with any young people you know, somebody just going to work for the first time. And maybe, just maybe, they will take the one, two, five, maybe even ten hours to find out about these basic steps they can take that will give them financial opportunities towards the end of their working career when they retire, how much they'll have when they retire, how much they can leave to others. All these things can be changed by taking smart steps in these early years. Thanks for listening. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.